If we haven't had the chance to meet, my name's Laura, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And whether you're here in person or checking us out online, we know you love Jesus. It's all good. And we just want to say welcome to our third and final week of a series that we've been working through called Say What? Now, I don't know about you, but I am super grateful that we covered this last year for three weeks, and we're doing it again this year for three weeks. And, and, and I don't know about you, but I could have a few more weeks of it because there are passages in the Bible that sometimes make us scratch our heads and wonder what in the world is that doing in the Bible. And so the reason we're doing this series is to take a look at and look at the text and get a better understanding of what it means for us in our lives and following Jesus. But before we dive into the discussion, let's take a minute and pray. Father God, we just want to say thank you so much for Katie and Lori Cooper's safe arrival in Guam this morning after three airport um, layovers and a slight layover in Hawaii. They have gotten there safely, and we thank you for that. God, be with them in this next month as Lori uh, helps Katie find a car and somewhere to live so that her midwife medicine adventure for the next three years can begin smoothly. God, we just lift them to you for safety and um, health in this new adventure in Katie's life. And God, we lift up the people in the south and the northeast that have been hit by Hurricane Ida for the devastation that we have seen and the stories that we heard, God, we um, ask for your hand on them uh, for provisions, for um, blessings, for health, and whatever it is that they are needing, God, we lift them to you. And for those of us hearing this message today, we ask for you to open our hearts and to hear whatever it is you need us to hear. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. So by a show of hands, how many left-handers do we have here today? Please raise your left hands. Awesome. We got a few of you. In preparation, uh, for those of you raising your hands first, you need to know you are joined by some of history's greats like Joan of Arc, Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, Ruth Boehner Ginsburg, Barack Obama, Ronald Reagan, just to name a few. And so in preparation for today's message, I took an informal survey among some of my left-handed friends and asked, what are some pros and cons of being left-handed? So here are some of their responses. Pros. In baseball, as a pitcher, making that out to first is a lot easier for our left-handed friends than our right-handed friends because they don't have to turn their bodies. Someone answered, I'm special because less than 10% of the population is left-handed. Someone else got very excited to have an entire day dedicated to themselves. Happy left-handed day. This is is a fun fact. Left-handed people have higher IQs than right-handed people. On average, lefties have IQs of 140 or higher. And there are more Nobel Prize winners that are left-handed than right-handed. I'm not really sure why, but left-handed people see better underwater. (laughs) And Pastor Eric's response, being a lefty, said the Apostle Creed says that Jesus sits on God's right hand, which clearly makes me more like God than righties. (sighs) 
That's Pastor Eric. So, <laughs> so some cons to being left-handed. Statistically, they die younger. In general, they're less coordinated than righties because the world is set up for right-handed folks. So think about desks, scissors, sports equipment. When learning dance moves, the natural way to turn is your dominant side, and the steps are taught to righties. Ink and pencil smear across your paper, right? And playing cards, okay, this made me have some empathy for my left-handed friends. When you play cards and you hold it right-handed, the numbers and you fan it out, they're set up on the left, so making it easier for righties than lefties. Something I never thought of before. So throughout history, left-handedness has been seen as a sign of weakness. Historically, we see the gamut of how our Southpaw friends have been treated from the humorous to the cruel. The Latin word for left is sinister. The French word for left is gauche, which translates to awkward. Growing up, I remember that any left-handed child in class would be trained out of being left-handed. In other words, the teacher would spend time in the lesson training left-handed friends to be right-handed. And if you're as old as Pastor Mike, you might remember being wrapped on the knuckles for using your left hand. It has been seen as a sign of weakness throughout history. Today's Say What moment is about a guy named Ehud. We meet Ehud in the book of Judges, and we read about him being described as left-handed, or as the Hebrew says, restricted to the right side. Scholars believe this probably means that he was disabled in some way on his right side. Was it from birth or something that happened later in life? We aren't really sure. But what we do know is that his left-handedness is so important to today's discussion. But before we jump into the book of Judges, we need to recognize a few things. First, when talking about judges, we're not talking about um, judges that you and I would see in the courts in today's judicial system. We're actually talking about ordinary men and women like Deborah or Samson that God had called to deliver the Israelites from foreign oppressors. There are 12 judges to be exact, and each of their stories are messy and filled with brokenness. And I don't know about you, but when I read through the book of Judges, I think to myself, wow, I'm so confused by that story. And then I read the next one, and I'm like, whoa, I'm even more confused. I would argue that the book of Judges could be its own Say What series. But the book of Judges is important for us to discuss because it's about Israel's failings, and God's mercy. The second important thing to remember when reading through the book of Judges is that the Israelites really wanted to do good in the eyes of God, but they kept messing up. And it was so much a pattern of disobedience, deliverance, or disobedience, destruction, deliverance. Disobedience, destruction, deliverance, repeat. It kind of reminds me of when I was a kid and I would put in my CD and I would hit the repeat button so I could hear the same song over and over and over again. This is what the Israelites look like throughout the book of Judges. Their disobedience, destruction, deliverance cycle became such a pattern for them that they got an entire book of the Bible dedicated just to them. We can argue that Judges is kind of the idiot's guide of what not to do when it comes to following God. 
it looked like this. So Israel would disobey God, normally by worshiping other gods. They found the gods of their neighbors really attractive, and so they would start worshiping those other gods. And as you would expect, God took great offense to this, and he would allow other nations to move in and to rule over them and oppress them. So then the Israelites would cry out to God, asking them to be set free. God heard their cries, and ever so merciful and ever so gracious, he would raise up a series of individuals to save his people. And then Israel would respond by worshiping God, but their deliverer would die, and they would revert back to their old ways of worshiping the gods of their neighbors. And this cycle continued over the course of about 300 years. Disobedience, destruction, deliverance, repeat. So to set the scene for today's discussion, I want to look at chapter 24 in the book of Joshua. Now, if you aren't familiar with what's going on leading up to Judges, let me set it up for you. So God calls on Moses and he says, hey, set my people free, lead them out of Egypt into the promised land, and Moses obeys. And he leads the people out of Egypt, and he dies, and he leaves his protege, Joshua, in charge. Joshua leads the people people of Israel. He gets them all snug, nice and neat, in their brand new home in the promised land. And when he knows it's his time to die, he gathers his people together, and he gives them a little pep talk. And he says this. Now, Fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord." Now, this is Joshua's pep talk to them. He's like, go, follow, obey. And how do you think the Israelites responded? They said this, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us up and our parents up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove, us, drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Right? They're like, oh, Joshua, we got this. Far be it from us to ever disobey God. And it continues this way all through chapter 24 in the book of Joshua. Joshua's like, hey, you guys got this? And the Israelites are like, yeah, Josh, we totally got this. And Joshua's like, you sure? You're going to be good, good witnesses? And the Israelites are like, absolutely no question. It kind of reminds me of when we go off to summer camp, for those of us who have ever been. We get there, maybe some of us are feeling a little bit sad, Maybe we left mom and dad at home for an entire week, and that makes us sad. Or maybe because we left our phone at home, we feel so disconnected from the real world for an entire week. Maybe it's not being able to play our video games. For most of us, that sadness only lasted for a moment or two, because when we got to camp and realized we had no parents, 
tons of junk food, and a million awesome activities to do, we were ready. And we lose our ourselves in the moment of camp. I remember those days. And for those of you who have ever attended church camp, do you remember those days? We had speakers all week long, like Jerry Jacoby, filling us up with the love of God. We had these amazing counselors who filled us with encouragement. They were fun. Some blew trumpets to wake us up. And that last night, when we're getting ready to say goodbye, some of us are sad. And there might have been a tear or two shed. This moment between Joshua and the Israelites remind me of that last night at camp. You make promises. I'm dumping that boy or girl when I get home. I'm doing devotionals every morning. I'm going to go and get my relationship right with my parents again. Whatever that commitment or that promise that we make, it's strong. We're on fire for God. This is the Israelites in that moment. They're on fire for God. And please know, I'm not scoffing those commitments that we make at camp. They're real. I know. I've been there and I've seen them. Just like I am confident that the moments for the people of Israel were real too. But what happens when their elders die? Eventually, the Israelites revert back to their old ways of worshiping other gods. They sideline God. They put him on the bench to live life their way. Enter Judges 3.12, where we read, Again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. You see, we're three chapters into the book of Judges, and we read, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They're in their mode of disobedience. So God gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Now, I don't know about you, every time I hear the name Eglon, I think, ooh, that's kind of a scary name. And he was. The Bible tells us he raped, pillaged, and killed the Israelites. So Eglon gathers up some neighbor buddies, the Ammonites and the Amalekites, to join them. And together, they come to attack Israel and take possession of the city of Palms. In verse 14, we read, the Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. And as we continue on in chapter 3 in the book of Judges, we read, Again the Israelites cry out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. There's that word, again, telling us this is not their first ro rodeo of crying out to God for help. The Hebrew says Ehud, our southpaw hero, was restricted on his right. Which, as we discussed a little earlier, Ahud, mo Ahud most likely had some sort of disability on his right side. Now, left-handed folks were treated pretty poorly. Folks with disabilities were treated even worse. This was a society even more cruel than anything we can imagine to their disabled. They were thought of as useless, unimportant, insignificant, non-threatening. So Ahud, the southpaw, gets sent by God to be the deliverer for the Israelites. And we read, Ahud had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which was strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. Now, I don't know about you, but the first time, a few times I read this, I'm like, okay, so why is that a big deal? 
but it is. Because Ehud was restricted on his right side, he had to strap his sword to his right thigh. Now, if this is a right-handed world that Ehud is living in, everyone else is strapping their swords to their left side. So when a person comes to the palace to see the king, the palace guards will do a check on the left side, making sure that there's no weapon there. But Ehud had his strapped to the right. So as we continue in Judges 3, we read about this sort of ancient world hunger games. Ehud was off to pay tribute to Eglon on behalf of Israel. Now, when a country pays tribute to another country, it's a symbol of inferiority. One country might pay money or grain or something to say to the other country, you are more powerful than us, we live in submission to you. It's kind of like in Hunger Games, the movie, when they randomly select two kids from every district to fight to the death. Katniss Everdeen jumps up and says, I volunteer as tribute. And, and then they send two kids to show submission to the capital. And that's what's going on here with Ehud and the Israelites. Their Katniss Everdeen, Ehud, may not be fighting anyone to the death, but Israel, through gifts, are demonstrating to Moab that they are submissive subjects. Verse 17 goes on to say, He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. Now, let me explain a little bit about this verse. It's not making fun of King Eglon for his size. Rather, it's pointing to something significant about who he was as a king. You see, there were kings who were warrior kings, who were focused on conquering, destroying, capturing. And then there were kings who wanted to be king for the fun and the gifts and the frivolity of things. And occasionally, you'd have a king who wanted to conquer and live in the lap of luxury. The Bible points out Eglon's size, not to poke fun, but to illustrate that he wanted the lavish lifestyle or the gifts or the fun, the frivolity. So as we continue on in Judges 3, we see in verse 19, we see that Ehud approaches King Eglon and he says to him, hey, I have a secret message for you. This is actually the English translation of the text. The Hebrew says that Ehud actually had a gift for the king, a secret gift. Well, the king being a gift-loving, fun, frivolity-type king Send, and being confronted with a left-handed man, sends everyone out of the room so he can receive whatever it is that Ehud has for him. Ehud, being considered disabled, is seen as not a threat. The king sees him as weak, someone who couldn't possibly hurt, hurt him. And that, coupled with all he can think about is a gift, he doesn't hesitate to ask. He's not even concerned about what it is. He just wants the secret gift no matter what. So there's some critical things going on in this story so far. First of all, remember the guards checked Ehud's left side and found no weapon. And secondly, the king has sent all of his bodyguards away. Third, Ehud's wielding a double-edged sword. Now, I don't know how up you are on your weaponry, but that's a sword meant to do some serious business. So we read on, Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, 
drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. The Hebrew phrase here is the dung fell out. Right. We, <laughs> we continue reading. Ahud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. Then Ahud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. So now Ahud escapes. Meanwhile, the Bible tells us that the servants come and find the doors of the upper room locked. And we read in Judges 3, after he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment. But when, did he, when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord had fallen to the floor dead. The story of the left-handed judge ends when Ahud escapes. He blows his trumpet. He summons the Israelites. And in verse 28, he says, follow me, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. So they followed him and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. Now, I don't know about you, but when we go through this story in Faith Kids, our kids are like, what? At like every other sentence. It's kind of a crazy story, right? I mean, Ahud himself is not the definition of a warrior deliverer for the people of God. His name means sympathy. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, the weakest, smallest tribe in Israel. And though there were some warriors that did come out of the tribe of Benjamin, some probably even left-handed, they were still looked upon as the little guy, the youngest of Jacob's boys. Ahud was not the idea of a savior. I mean, if I cry out to God, for a savior, a military leader to save me from the Moabites who enslaved me? And God picks a young guy from the weakest tribe with a crippled right hand whose name means sympathy? I'm thinking to myself, yay, thanks God, we're going to win now, right? But that's just it. God uses these type of people. Here's what we can take away from the story of Ahud. Number one, God's Savior would come in weakness. A very important trajectory happens in the story of Ahud. We start out in the book of Joshua. Now Joshua is the type of leader that people followed. He was strong. He was dynamic. He was a prominent soldier figure for God. And when we enter the book of Judges, we see some of the least likely characters that God has called to deliver his people from Israel. After Ahud, the disabled dude, we have Deborah, a woman leader called to rescue the Israelites from sin and destruction in a patriarchal society completely unheard of. And then we go on to hear about Gideon, who God appointed to rescue the Israelites to defeat the enemy armies with only three hundred soldiers. Samson, he was morally a scumbag. 
And when we leave the book of Judges and we go to 1 Samuel, we meet David, a small, scrawny shepherd boy. You see this trajectory from Joshua to Judges to 1 Samuel, and it goes from massive strength to serious weakness. But it goes on to point us to the way for the most unexpected, the most left-handed of them all, Jesus Christ. Isaiah the prophet says there was nothing in his appearance that would have attracted us to him. He was poor. He was homeless. He was, did not have a commanding presence. People did not like him at all. But Jesus achieved a victory on his own, just like David, just like Ahud. Je Jesus crushed his people's enemies all on his own. His victory was a surprise to the forces of evil. They didn't see it coming. And here's the thing. No one thought Jesus was their savior. Jesus' death on the cross, the Jewish leaders thought they were done with him. But he proved otherwise. No one thought Jesus was their salvation. Just like we read in the book of Judges, Ehud was not the savior that, these, that the Israelites were expecting. Judges 3, 12 through 30, shows us that salvation comes out in ways that no one is expecting, that a lot of people are going to miss if they choose to continue to live a right-handed life. The second thing that Ehud shows us is that God saves us now through the weakness of our faith. You see, we're all trying to save ourselves. Some of us believe that it's through good works or giving enough money or earning our salvation to please God. And then there's others that, you know, they want to live in a world of success, achievement, competition. How much money can I make to be financially strong? How many friends can I have to be really well liked? What kind of car can I have to show how awesome I am? If I'm rich enough or strong enough financially, then I can be saved. That my life has meaning. That I'm worth something. Finding salvation in meaningless things like worshiping other gods isn't God's plan for our lives. God's salvation comes in a different way. An unexpected way. It comes in a left-handed way. In Philippians 3, Paul's writing to those trying to find salvation in religious and irreligious ways. And to paraphrase Paul, as he works through these ways to save himself, he concludes through these futile attempts this way. He says, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless, when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage. The Hebrew word here is skubela, which translates to dung. So the Apostle Paul is saying that all of this was worthless, dung, meaningless without God. Salvation is a gift to each one of us, not when we come to God in our strongest, most confident moments, but when we come to him left-handed or weak 
or in our pain. It's a, it's a gift of our faith in Jesus Christ. When we do communion here at church, some of us use the covenant book of worship to administer this order of service. And I love the words that we use. Come, not because you must, but because you may. Not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on the grace of God, but because in your frailty and sin, you stand in constant need of his mercy and help. Come, not to express an opinion, but to seek his presence and pray. In 1 Corinthians 1.27, we read, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And in Luke chapter 5, we read Jesus' words when he says, It is not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. Finally, the account of Ehud's life that we read about in Judges 3 reminds us that in God's kingdom, availability is more important than ability. Ehud was an unlikely candidate for a hero, yet he was willing to yield himself by the Spirit, willing to yield himself to be used by the Spirit of God. So many times we think we have to fix ourselves up and be right with God before we can give ourselves fully over to him. Or that because we're not perfect or that we're flawed, God doesn't want us. But God's kingdom and the world today does not advance through our ability, the right hand of our strength, but it advances through our availability. Jesus taught his disciples that it was not about their strength to win the world, but it was about wielding themselves to him. In John chapter 6, we read Jesus feeding the 5,000. And many, and many scholars agree that it was actually upwards of 15 to 20,000 people that were actually fed that day. And in reading John 6, Philip says, and I'm totally paraphrasing here, give them something to eat. We could work for eight months straight and still not have enough money to feed all these people. But the Bible records in all four Gospels that Jesus performed a miracle this day. He made what would be an equivalent to a Hebrew Happy Meal or Lunchable for upwards of 15 to 20,000 people and still had 12 baskets of food left over. Some would argue that this gospel account is in all four books so that the disciples would learn and know that someday they would be asked not to feed 15 to 20,000 hungry bellies, but millions of unreached people. You see, that one act on that one day wasn't about their ability to strategize or fundraise properly. It was about their availability. Jesus did more in that one day than Bill Gates could do with his millions and billions of dollars. You see, it's not about our ability. It's about our availability. God can do so much through our acts of obedience. It's not about the right hand of our strength. It's about yielding ourselves over to him. We may feel like we don't have a lot to offer. We may think to ourselves, I don't have the right hand of strength. And I would tell you, it's never been about that. 
God uses the weak to shame the strong, as Ehud shows us in Judges. You see, God, you, glory goes to God who fights through the left hand of weakness. And so I ask us sitting here today, where has God told us that he wants us to give where we haven't given? Or is there a ministry we've been thinking of joining, but we're not sure if we have enough time or commitment? Is there something we want to be doing that we are not doing? Or is there a person that we want to reach out to, but we're afraid because we think we don't have all the answers? Maybe you're thinking, people will mock me. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy enough. I don't have the answers. I'm not perfect enough. And what you're saying is that my arm isn't strong enough. But what God is saying through the story of Ehud and the story of Deborah and Gideon and David and pointing us to Jesus is I need you to obey me. I need you to rely on me. I need you to follow me. What does that look like for each of us here? I would argue it's what Paul writes in Philippians 4.13 when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, nothing is impossible for those who live in the obedience and dependence of God. God used a man as we, seen as weak in the eyes of history and made him a hero for the people of Israel. God took a homeless, poor, hated man and made him our savior. And God can do that through us. We need only go to him to say, Lord, I have nothing to offer but my obedience. Will you stand? Let us pray. Father God, we come to you not because we are strong, but because we are weak. Father God, we come to you asking you to lead us and to guide us with your grace and your mercy as we see in the book of Judges, God. God, whatever it is we have on our hearts today, whatever it is we bring here, God, help us to know, to understand, to obey that you want us in all of our weakness and all of our insecurities. God, help us to have faith in that and help us to hear the story of Ehud to draw us closer to you. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.